0: One of the first decisions IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel made as part of his four-month-long listening tour is focused on safety and stopping scammers. Werfel ended the longtime IRS policy of unannounced home visits by revenue officers seeking to collect tax debts. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me to discuss why this policy change is part of Werfel's long-term goal to transform the IRS. Jason, how are we doing today? Hey, Eric. All right, so why is the policy change necessary today more than ever?
1: I think one of the things that Danny Wolfler heard during this listening tour, and he talked with employees, he talked with unions, he talked with citizens, really he talked with anyone who would talk to him about what's going on at the IRS. And what they heard time and again was these unannounced visits, these surprise visits were of growing concern. Werfel talked about this earlier this week at a press conference. With the
2: growth in scam artists, taxpayers are increasingly uncertain who is knocking on their doors. For our IRS employees... There were fears about their own personal safety on these visits. I also learned that these concerns were shared by our partners at the National Treasury Employees Union, who have long advocated for increased safety for IRS employees.
1: Again, IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel. One of the things he also offered, Eric, was really interesting. He goes, what's the current environment today is much different than the current environment five or ten years ago Knocking on someone's door, ringing their doorbell just is not something that people are as comfortable with. And there's a lot of concerns about IRS employees and their safety and what's it feel like when they do a home visit these days. And, of course, you know, Eric, NTEU, the National Treasury Employees Union, which represents their employees, has pointed out that all the rhetoric around IRS and the government has really not helped the
0: situation either. So why was the IRS conducting surprise visits in the first place? I didn't even know they were still doing those. <laughs> and I think that's what's surprising to a lot of people. And
1: I think that's why also Werfel said, we're going to end this right away. This is not something we're going to phase out. We're just going to end it. And I think it comes from just a decades-old policy. I think it's it's just the way things have always been done. Werfel describes kind of what these home visits were like and, and why they were doing them.
2: Under the old policy... The IRS typically assigned about 100,000 cases to revenue officers each year. While we don't have the specific number of unannounced visits that occurred, it was a routine part of the employee's job to take this step. I also want to note that IRS auditors, our revenue agents, do not make these kinds of unannounced visits. This means that today's announcement will bring all of our civil side employees into policy alignment on visits. We have about 2,300 revenue officers. So this change today will affect a lot of employees and will be another step forward in our agency's transformation work under IRA and the strategic operating plan. Again, IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel talking about
1: how also the policies are different, right? When you talk about auditors are different than revenue agents, talk about people who do these home visits versus people who don't. And there's not, on the civilian side, not law enforcement, and let's be clear about this, these revenue officers are not law enforcement officers, why they were doing home visits and some uh, other parts of the IRS weren't. So I think part of this as well is this is a policy that maybe just grew over time and it was time to really rethink it. And, And that's one of the things, again, Danny Werfel's heard time and again during this listening tour.
0: Speaking with Federal News Network's Executive Editor Jason Miller, so what's going to take the place of these unannounced visits to homes and businesses if they're not going to do that anymore?
1: Dana Werfel has been clear to say, listen, we still need to deal with these issues. There's still unpaid taxes, unfiled tax returns that we have to deal with. So he said, listen, we have a better policy. And all that new process, if you will, will be listed on the IRS.gov website in the coming days. But he described what the new approach will be like.
2: We will be replacing these unannounced visits with mailed letters to schedule meetings. Revenue officers will make contact with taxpayers through an appointment letter known as a 725B and schedule a follow-up meeting. Here's another advantage of this decision. This will help taxpayers feel more prepared when it is time to meet. Taxpayers whose cases are assigned to a revenue officer will now be able to schedule face-to-face meetings at a set place and time. They will have the necessary information and documents in hand to reach resolution of their cases more quickly.
1: The other thing Daniel Werfel really said was there will be occasion, very few times, that a home visit will be required. However, he said mostly besides the letters sent through the postal service, there's also the use of secure electronic communications through the IRS website, and additionally, he said we're going to really improve the technology, the mobile apps, the the website technology too, so to make communication even easier. Eric, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to be uh, get one of those letters from the IRS telling you either you didn't pay your taxes or you they can't find your taxes. I unfortunately got one recently, and I logged on, went through the process. It was very easy, very secure. I'm not saying they're perfect by any means. I'm just saying this is my own personal experience of having to, unfortunately, getting one of those letters that said there's something wrong with my taxes. And so, so I think that's where they're pushing. And They do realize not everybody will have online access either, and they're going to have more Saturday hours at walk-in centers, more call centers so people can call and talk to representatives. So I think there are many things they're going to try to do to, again, collect those debts, deal with unpaid taxes, but not have to do these unannounced surprise home visits.
0: I did get one of those letters a few years ago, and I found that uh, things ran a bit smoother when you were paying them money. So, uh, so yeah, so for a positive experience, yeah, when you have the money to pay them and, you know, that process goes smoothly. But what about the folks who are still dodging them? How else are they planning to uh, conduct oversight and hold citizens and businesses accountable for paying their taxes?
1: No surprise, one of the big things they're doing is taking money from the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, they got a lot of money and uh, we know Congress is trying to claw some of it back, but with the money they do have and they're spending now, they're really looking at these changes that are coming. And one one of those big changes are on data and analytics. Again, Werfel talks about why this move towards using better data, more analytics is really important to, again, replacing these unannounced visits.
2: The better we can do at using data the more we can focus our resources on individuals and organizations that are evading taxes versus engaging with, with honest taxpayers. We want more and more in an increasing way, when we look into a tax issue, to have greater and greater confidence that we have really good reason to look into it because the data is pointing to a real issue. The better the data, the better our analytics, the more accurate we're going to be, and therefore, the more often when we're reaching out to a taxpayer, we're reaching out to one that is in a significant tax issue versus an honest taxpayer. So a key part of modernizing the IRS is improving the way in which we are leveraging data to do our jobs better.
1: Again, IRS Commissioner Dana Orfel speaking to the press earlier this week, uh, making the announcement around ending the policy of unannounced visits and why the data and analytics side of it really will be helpful. Worf also brings up this idea of one of the fundamental goals of the taxpayer bill of rights is to provide taxpayers or citizens access and avenue to resolve their issues quickly and completely. And he goes, that's a lot of different channels. So if they can improve their electronic means, they can have, again, better data, better analytics, better technology, hire more people. They're really trying to look at all the different pieces and parts they can bring together to not only ensure people are paying their taxes, but give them better customer experience, better customer service. And and I think this change of this unannounced visits change, this decision not to, to end this decades-long policy is all part of, as you heard Warfel say earlier in our discussion, Eric, part of this transformation that's it's currently happening across IRS.
0: All right. And this is Mr. Warfel's first major move as IRS commissioner or first major policy change. I'm sure there'll be more to come. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, thanks for giving us all the details. My pleasure. And you can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com.
1: Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity
3: and hard work work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here.
4: Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine.
3: You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Aniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The
4: time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground. Because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people. Because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility, both as a union leader and as a pastor, to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair, with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena, so so I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown
3: through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
4: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself, but I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready, but it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
3: As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
4: You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders gets me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause, and, and and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain.
3: I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
4: You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I, I gotta quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God, and that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in, uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people, right? Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It is it, it's, it's needed. Uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path
3: as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of Different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, honest. Here's the truth. Yes, and it's it's easy. Yes, yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career?
4: You know, I don't know you asking for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer. Right. Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it right? And the, in the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
3: And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was
4: my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the deep south. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith,